Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Carla Nappi, your host. I recently spoke with Judith Farquhar about a book that just came out that she co-authored with Chi Chung Zhang called 10,000 Things, Nurturing Life in Contemporary Beijing. Now, this is a book that's not only wonderfully well-written and just very um, accessible, but also extraordinarily eloquent and vibrant. It's also a tremendously interesting story about the public and private spaces of Yangsheng, what we might translate as nurturing life or cultivating life in contemporary Beijing. Now, Farquhar and Zhang bring us into various spaces in which the, um, the the experience of and contemplation of life as a process is taking place or had taken place at the at the time of their research in Beijing. And this ranges from uh, popular self-help books or self-health books in bookstores to the homes of people who they interviewed about their uh, Yangsheng practices to walks down the street um, in the morning and the afternoon in the district that was the uh, main focus of their eth- ethnographic work. It's a wonderfully engaging book. Um, it's a book that's really appropriate for and speaks to a wide readership. So you don't have to know anything about China or um, practices of health in China to really um, get a, a whole lot out of this book. But it's also extraordinarily useful for specialists in um, the history of or, or practice of anthropology of health practices um, in China. It was a great, um, great experience reading it and had a great time talking with Judith about it. So I hope you enjoy. Hi, Judith. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're here today to talk um, for New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in Science, Technology, and Society with Judith Farquhar about the new book that she co-wrote with Chi Chung Zhang called 10,000 Things, Nurturing Life in Contemporary Beijing, and that just came out with Zone Books in 2012. Now, this is a fascinating book. It's an extraordinarily ambitious book. It's a wonderfully um, imaginatively narrativized book about a topic or really a series of topics that are potentially going to be of interest to people interested in not just medicine and healing and or nurturing life um, in contemporary Beijing or contemporary uh, contemporary China, but also really, you know, the the ethnography of cities, urban cityscapes, um, and also just, I think, more generally, the possibilities of creating a narrative um, about a topic that is of really um, wide and sometimes inchoate um, contemporary importance and contemporary form. So thank you so much, Judith. It's really, it's a wonderful book, and I had a great time reading it. Thanks. That's so nice of you to say. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this topic in particular? I know this is certainly not your first book. Um, so why did you choose to move to this particular topic? Well, the topic had come up uh, toward the end of Appetites, my uh, last uh, monograph. And uh, I was interested in Yangsheng or nurturing life uh, materials already in the 90s when I was finishing up Appetites. Uh, and I had noticed that Yangsheng was kind of a movement uh, among Beijingers, which uh, I think it kind of really got going among urbanites uh, uh, in the mi- mid-80s in very large-scale ways. Um, but um, actually, I've quite... I, I could tell quite a long story about how Zhang Chichang and I uh, actually uh, crafted the whole topic together. And it, the, the turning to uh, Yangsheng as an as a, a, a area or a domain in which to do ethnographic research was as much his idea as mine, actually, uh, when, we, when we kind of uh, got to know each other and uh, were uh, decided, or I should say were authorized to, to do collaborative research together by people in his uh, unit, which is the Beijing University of Traditional Chinese Medicine. Um, I, uh, when, when we made this decision, we started talking about what we could work on together. He was already very interested in Yangsheng as a 
phenomenon. But uh, both of us turned out to be interested in a kind of phenomenological scholarship and interested in embodiment or the, or the lived bodies, uh, how people were uh, living as bodies in contemporary Beijing. And we both thought that the topic would be uh, something we could talk with people about, which would give us some insight into um, the life of um, or the embodied life of people in uh, in contemporary Beijing. So that's sort of where it came from. Yeah, it would actually, it, it's great to hear um, a little bit more about your collaborative relationship with um, Zhang Chang, the co-author. I mean, it's the collaborative nature of the project is extraordinarily uh, moving and vivid and very much shapes, um, even from this reader's perspective, every aspect of even the, the shape or the structure that the book takes. Um, what was the nature, can you say a little bit about um, the nature of that collaborative work because it's um, it's notable that the your co-author wasn't just your co-author but in some chapters of the book his, uh, Zhang Chichang's work actually turns out to be one of the subjects um, yeah. of the chapter itself so I would uh, can you say a little bit more about that or, or a lot more about that as you as you prefer <laughs> Uh, it's my favorite topic about the book is the nature of the collaboration. We, um, Zhang Chitong doesn't even read English, much less speak it. So it was necessary to work entirely in Chinese. And um, I, I could never claim to be a really effective communicator in all registers or genres of modern Chinese. So we... Um, uh, we learned very how to talk with each other very, very well. And actually, the final chapter, which is a rec- record of a conversation uh, between us, some people found it implausible that we could have had such a conversation between two languages and two, uh, two kind of academic worlds. But in fact, it's a pretty accurate uh, a reflection or record of, of what we were talking about because we learned to understand each other through... Um, through, you know, various, uh, 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 what's the word, kind of makeshift manners of speaking Chinese uh, at a pretty sophisticated level, I think. So that was, uh, perhaps that's the foundation of our collaboration, is that we really learned to talk to each other as individuals and as, of course, scholars who had a lot to say. Um, But uh, because he didn't have English and because the book was has been written in English and he is a full co-author we needed to find a lot of different strategies for getting his voice very much in there so one of the main things we did was um, we uh, as I was writing pieces and drafts and 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 uh, kind of drafting up arguments that I thought might have to be made in the book uh, when I was in Beijing and I, I was going to Beijing I have been going to Beijing over this period of time about twice a year and staying for various numbers of months. But um, we would, when I was in Beijing, I would meet with him in the afternoon and uh, in his office, and we would just painstakingly go over every sentence, and I would make shift to translate the sentence. Or sometimes we had the help of my current collaborator, Lai Lili, or the help of um, Zhang Chichang's wife, Shan Yi, who is an English teacher. And the, you know, whatever small group was there would just, you know, crawl through the text and tell him what it said. He would have an, an English version. He could at least keep track of which paragraph we were on, and he would write his notes in Chinese in the margins. And then he'd think about it and uh, make suggestions for changes or add things that would have to be said. Or a very, very rarely he would say, no, I don't think we can or should say X or Y that you've got in here. And um, so he did, uh, except for chapter one, which I uh, explain in the book, he wasn't really very interested in. Uh, he... Um, he, he, he knows what's there in, in the text, and he has had his input substantially. But I also felt beyond that kind of uh, cooperative editing process, it was really important to get some of his own style of writing uh, and thinking uh, in the book as, as his way of giving form to the book. Uh, uh, starting from his point of view, which is quite different from mine, really. So I, I think you can probably tell that as you read. I hope you can. Um, 
and uh, so that's one reason we used a lot of his writing as kind of the object around which the argument of uh, of a chapter, two chapters actually are done in this way, uh, um, uh, as, as the kind of object around which the argument of the chapter could be built. Mm-hmm. And how did you, at what point in the research and or kind of set of encounters that produced the book, mm-hmm. um, did you decide or did you collaboratively decide to take or to use the format of interviews mm-hmm. um, and or in, in one of the chapters, in fact, um, and we'll talk about this, um, even uh, sets of comments that are identified by the, which one of you actually uh, is, is contributing them um, to right. a particular topic. So how did that decision um, come about? Come about was that a late decision, or was that something that you kind of felt organically through the early, even through the early stages of this process would be part of the ultimate product? Oh, I think the decision to do interviews was very early because when John Chichang and I started talking together, I had we we met after I had given uh, a day and a half of workshops at the Beijing University of Chinese Medicine about the possible relationships between anthropology and um, and Chinese medicine. And I was hoping to, to craft a, a sort of research relationship out of those workshops. And in fact, it did happen after some anxiety about whether such a thing could be approved. And uh, Zhang Qichong was basically assigned to me, was, was an incredibly lucky um, development. And uh, so we started talking then, but he had already been sitting in on my workshops, so he had uh, what might have been a rather new understanding of ethnography and anthropology. And um, he was very excited about the possibility of doing an ethnography of people's everyday lives and body practices and health practices in the city. So he, it was more, it's, uh, of course, I'm an ethnographer and I would always try to do interviews and participant observation, but he was really pushing even harder to get out there on the streets and talk to people, talk to people at the greatest possible length, uh, because he saw tremendous potential in that as, a, as an addition or supplement to his uh, ongoing philosophical and historical work on Yangsheng and Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. And it's um, in, so the interviews are very striking. What's also striking is the way, in terms of format, and then and then <laughs> I promise I'll I'll bring us into the actual um, subject <laughs> subject matter of the book in a bit. Um, but the format of the kind of co-authored engagements with those interviews, mm-hmm. um, and and the co-authored engagements with each other's contributions as well, is often um, or at various points of the book distinguished according to which of you made that contribution. So your individual voices are very much retained in the structure of at least some of the chapters, as well as um, in as you narrativize it in the introduction. How did that format decision come about? Was that a late decision or was that something that was also something that you envisioned from, from the early stages of the project? I think that was rather later because we had these interviews and we were fascinated by large parts of the transcripts of the interviews. But um, I felt as if... I'm not sure. I can't. I can't put myself back in that place where we made the decision. But it did seem as if we were reading these materials in somewhat different ways, mm-hmm. and um, he was much more a kind of a booster of Yangsheng activities than I was. Although I'm certainly not negative about them, and uh, I was more interested in the historical uh, sources and and uh, and and background to the things that people were saying, and he was more interested in their actual strategies of of wellness you know he was he was interested in how smart people were being about their health and their everyday lives and i was interested in how people were uh recalling certain things about an uh, an earlier socialist kind of everyday life or i was interested in the way in which people were incorporating uh, global health information into their thinking about chinese medicine and things like that so um we uh, we were talking about these interviews in somewhat different ways, and it did seem like an opportunity to get Zhang Qichang's voice clearly distinguished from mine, since I, you know, as the per- the person who was writing the English book, 
I had already such an edge over him in terms of having my own voice. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of the book from a reader's perspective, I think. um, And just kind of as an aside, maybe this is just my own idiosyncratic reader's experience, but it seems to me that sort of anthropology monographs um, tend to be more kind of lively and open in their narrative forms than those of historians, myself included. I mean, thinking of Beale's Vita, um, My Cocaine Museum, Twice Dead, and this now, I mean, these really stand as paragons for me of what it can look like to preserve a kind of dialogue with all the tension but all the productive genesis that comes out of that dialogue in a way that like a single voice and a single narrative flow throughout the book doesn't so um, so this is just to say uh, thank you for that because I think that's really inspiring um, regardless of the fact that the subject matter is also inspiring that decision was particularly inspiring from a narrative point of view. Well, in anthropology, we tend to fetishize voice, you know, in voices and so forth. We tend to, and but actually, you know, when I wrote my dissertation on Chinese medicine, which was published as an almost unreadable book years ago, it it was um, it it uh, it was first a dissertation, of course, and I sent it to Nathan Sivan, very much a historian and very uh, really a historian mostly of the pretty ancient past. And he was the one who said there aren't enough diverse voices in this dissertation. You have to get more direct quotes, more translations. And I was so grateful for that. And it really, when I did that, even before the book was finished, uh, it was such an improvement. So it's not just anthropologists. But we tend to think of voice as as multiple voices as a necessary sort of thing. And uh, and that's, that's a good thing. But... Uh, sometimes that's done in a way that forgets that it's really the single author writing the English prose who has the upper hand on these voices. So one has to keep attention in there with different styles, genres, registers of speech, but it, it's, one shouldn't pretend that you've actually got a vast teeming population of really different voices in the book. So just as the narrative um, is very much a sort of alive as a process is a process of dialogue in here, um, the book, as we move into the introduction and into the body of the work, the book itself explores life, life as a process, life as a generative process. Um, and in particular, you call this the, or the, the both of you refer, refer to this as the 10,000 things that life is and is becoming. And this is done through an ethnographic and philosophical study of everyday life activism in contemporary Beijing. Now, there's two aspects of that discussion that I'd love um, if you could tell us a little bit about. First is the idea of everyday life activism. Um, Can you say a little bit about that and the ways that that um, notion um, informs the work that uh, goes on to to fill the rest of the work? Well, uh, activism is a word that's translated directly from modern Chinese, of course, the Gigi Funza, uh, and many, I've always known many people who called themselves Gigi Funza, or, to, or will look nostalgically back to the Maoist era and say, you know, back in those days, I was a Gigi Funza. I was trying to be an activist and trying to make things better for everyone right in my immediate environment is kind of what it means. And um, so there are not so many people that you talk to anymore who will spontaneously call themselves Gigi Funza. But I have always, I have still, right up to the present, even under, you know, these kinds of new conditions that Beijingers are living under, um, I've always felt that um, that that uh, the, the people I see living their everyday lives in, in China are activists about them. You know, if, if something is not quite comfortable, if something is not quite working right, they're going to uh, jump right in and try to fix it. So that, you know, the, the, the ridiculous example that I always give is I, uh, for a while I was working on the 10th floor of the um, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences building with a bunch of wonderful colleagues in the Sociology and Anthropology Institute. And so I was always riding the elevator up and down. And this was an elevator that the doors closed automatically after a pause but that also had a door close button. In America, you'd have many people waiting for the doors to close automatically. In that building, I never saw anyone not push the button. 
That is, you're always right on duty trying to make things work in the, for you, right, and for, for your friends. So that kind of activism is something that I also felt we saw even among those interviewees and uh, people we just casually talked with uh, frequently in the streets, that, that activism which was about, um, well, let's see, I'm a little stiff this morning, what can we do about that? Or... Um, uh, it's, you know, it's after November 15th, and even though it's unseasonably warm, make sure you wear your gloves. I mean, it's just uh, a kind of ongoing uh, meddlingness, you know, a, a tendency to meddle with conditions, which is just taken for granted that any, any sane, uh, more or less functional person will do that. <laughs> so I think that that's the, the fact that so much meddling should be oriented toward being, being well and having the pleasure, the, 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 the ongoing pleasure of feeling well, uh, is, uh, is one of the imponderables or one of the intangibles that I was trying to capture in some of this description. And I still don't think I've really succeeded. Well, I think one of the things that, um, is really striking about what you're saying and that the meddlingness and is echo something that uh, comes up later on in the book where um, you and your co-author mention or, or one of you or both of you mentions that one of the things that might characterize some of the very, very seemingly diverse practices of Yangsheng that you look at in this book is exactly um, the fact that Yangsheng is deliberate Right. right. This is sort of a, and, and maybe that also starts to get at some of this, the importance of this active meddling, sort of deliberate nature of the practices. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a good insight, Carla, because um, uh, the maybe it's the deliberateness is what's the difference between Yangsheng and ordinary activity. Uh, for other people, because when we talked to younger people or uh, talked to older people about younger people, uh, you know, there were many people who would who would say, oh, I can't or she can't do Yangsheng because she's too busy. You know, she's she, there's 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 never any leisure in her life. There's she she can't be deliberate about this kind of thing. Uh, you know, the there's a younger guy in our in, in our group of interviewees who was a policeman who said that his life was just too hectic and unpredictable to do anything Yangsheng, although he did swim every whenever he got a chance in a in a swimming place near his uh, his police station. And so he thought that he was not succeeding to live a Yangshan kind of life. Um, and uh, I think that he felt that it would have been necessary to deliberately organize his life around Yangshan in order to qualify as someone who was, you know, living that way. So that, and he just didn't have the freedom out of his, you know, strange job to uh, to live that way. So I think deliberateness of Yangsheng is an important, uh, you know, uh, way in which people identify the practice and distinguish it from other ways of living. He, the policeman was really fascinating. This was the same figure, um, if if I'm not mistaken, who likened the body to a car. That's right. right? That's um, right. He, he was obviously loved to tinker with his with his car on the weekends, and uh, and it and it stimulated a lot of thinking on his part. <laughs> so interesting. I mean that that actually brings me to um, the other kind of question that I or one of the uh, the next question that I wanted to ask you as we get into the subject of this is um, I mean a reader might interpret his um, especially the fact that this policeman is likening the body to a car, his tinkering with his car, and is fixing his car as a form of, yeah, or a, a kind of echo of, or a form of Yangsheng. Um, the, the kinds of activities that you, um, uh, you and Zhang discuss in this book under Yangsheng are very varied, at least for a reader who may not be familiar with this topic, including calisthenics and jogging, walking backward, water calligraphy, dancing, singing, learning a language, etc. Um, aside from the, perhaps the quality of this sort of deliberateness, um, what for you uh, joins these activities together? So is there a way that at the end of the, this research you came to understand all of these processes or practices as having something in common or is that the wrong kind of question to ask and the wrong way to think about this? 
I don't think it's the wrong question, but I think in the end, I can't come up with a really, really sound, common principle inhabiting all these things. I'm much more interested in the way in which people try to do that, you know, mm-hmm. in the way in which our, our, the people we spoke with tried to say, well, Yangsheng is actually ultimately always this or always that. So one, I think, particularly successful principle of that kind that people would mention to us was Yangsheng is really qi ju, which is rising and resting or managing your time, managing your time to move when you should be moving and rest when you should be resting. And uh, that kind of, uh, and people even spoke about alternation and regularity and even discipline, right? So they would they would talk about organizing the time of their daily life as the fundamental um, form that that told them and others that they were uh, nurturing their life. So I think that's a, so that, you know, whether it's swimming in the lake uh, in all weathers or, uh, or walking backwards or doing Tai Chi or doing Qigong, all of that can be kind of enfolded into a sense of everyday life as, uh, as a period of managed, carefully managed time, which has kind of got a kind of a yin-yang alternation of rising and resting. Mm-hmm. And that actually, I think, really nicely brings us into um, sort of one of the, the, I think, gifts that you give us in the introduction is you uh, you raise and you discuss a series of concerns, you call them chronic concerns in the book, that seem to act as kind of um, major theoretical not problems in the sense of there being, you know, there being necessarily like bad things, but sort of areas that maybe were generate produced sort of were generative or were productive in the um, in, in thinking about them. I'm saying in a totally inarticulate way, but you can kind of get what I'm saying. Um, yeah. and, and sort of, we've you've already brought up the um, the challenges and the opportunities that come out of translation being one of them. Um, yeah. Another one, certainly not the last one. There are several, but another one that you mentioned is exactly t- temporality. Um, and right. I think so. It, it seems that. Um, uh, I think you mentioned somewhere in here that the contemporary and the, the the choice to use that term and use that as your focus is a way of putting these two aspects, at least two aspects of temporality um, that feature so prominently in the book, the kind of the um, historical texts or what we might call ancient philosophical texts or texts about medicine with um, contemporary ethnography and putting sort of the old and the new into a dialogue that out of which emerges an idea of the contemporary. Can you talk about the sort of the, the challenges with dealing with um, or in dealing with temporality and, and time in this way um, as um, they affected your putting into dialogue, these very different temporal frames and very different potentially types of sources. Well, I could talk about this for quite a long time. Sure. Um, as long as, <laughs> as long as you want. Uh, I'm uh, I'm very interested in these questions of temporality, and one of the original impulses for this book, also stemming from my early conversations with John Chichang, was we wanted to see how well we could um, show that uh, ancient philosophical resources are constantly being redeployed in the present. And sometimes without being marked by any particular uh uh, uh, vocabulary or uh, any particular, you know, brilliant depth or uh, rhetorical flourish or anything like that. Both of us felt that uh, just what how people were living their lives might be a uh, um, a reflection or a, a or a re embodiment of some very ancient principles and ideas. You can see this uh, idea in John Chichang's. Uh, uh, particular separate commentaries on the interview material in chapter three, um, and so this this kind of ongoing uh, it, uh, uh, linkage or uh, ongoing um, uh, appropriation of uh, of ancient philosophical resources and sometimes not so ancient philosophical resources, of course, um, is. Uh, uh, something that we wanted to catch up, uh, or or that we wanted to highlight. So, um, the 
the thing that we did not want to do, or anyway, I very strongly did not want to do, was argue for an unbroken continuity mm-hmm. of Yangsheng. However, we we had somewhat different positions on this, and I came to really appreciate Zhang Qichang's position. Zhang Qichang wanted to show in every possible way that the heritage is alive today. For him, contemporaneity is the, or what's the interesting parts of contemporary uh, life and uh, and understanding is the way in which um, the the Chinese heritage is still meaningful and still lived, uh, and so he wanted to uh, resist the uh, the the Western historiographical habit of making the past, including the past of ideas, into a separate object of contemplation across a, a gulf, uh, which moderns can contemplate across a gulf of judgment, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So um, he he felt like it was necessary to constantly show that uh, people are living uh, uh, things like the uh, cosmogony of 10,000 things and uh, the Tao and yin-yang and so forth. Um, uh, as as creative uh, contemporaries, uh, and I uh, I came to very much appreciate that impulse, and I refused in even in my uh, in the final in the conclusion in which I tried to indicate some anthropological concerns about uh, the kind of nationalism that and 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 cultural uh, centering of culture that Zhang uh, Qichang does. I never, even in the conclusion, I was not willing to reject that idea that the heritage lives in the present because I, I, I've come to kind of agree with him about that. And I was hoping that all the different ways we present Yangsheng material here might kind of teach that to people somehow. And and this sort of, um, this brings up something that I wanted to ask you about later, but I might as well just ask you now. This, um, in the conclusion in which some of these ideas are being worked out, um, it seems to me that what you just said uh, is very resonant of the theme of, or the topic of national studies, um, right. as it comes up as a major theme. Is Can you say a little bit about that issue? Um, because that's something that um, very much... Um, uh, is is very much at issue in the conclusion in a really interesting way and seems to get at some of these issues between uh, or these issues of encounter between the old and the new that you're talking about. Uh, well, national studies or guaxia is, as as you know, and as I've said in the conclusion, is is a, a major academic and pedagogical and public sphere kind of movement in China now, uh, and a great many scholars who's who have made their careers out of studying the, the the Chinese, you know, aspects of the Chinese tradition and Chinese history and Chinese literature and so forth, are kind of aligning themselves with uh, a guoshui or national studies position. And one of the, uh, at least, you know, if I can, uh, I, I do I do rely heavily on Zhang Qichang's uh, formation of these issues. So he argues that uh, guoshui has been emphasizing, has been trying to alter pedagogies, uh, trying to uh, intervene in uh, in curricula such that uh, young Chinese people will actually be formally taught some of their own classics in schools. And there's a kind of resistance in this, you know, a resistance to the globalization of all knowledge under the banner of, of science and uh, and uh, a, a kind of global humanities, such as uh, ethics and so forth. And um, so uh, there's a politics to Guoshui, absolutely. And some of that politics is something that an anthropologist looking at it from the distant, from North America and uh, and thinking about some other nas- cultural nationalist movements, such as Nihon Jinron in Japan, might might want to be a little hesitant to embrace Guoshui because it just it could be uh, fairly exclusionary and it could be uh, retailing or marketing a kind of a a narrow band Chinese tradition which is uh, uh, 
uh, which is might even be scapegoating some other kinds of of heritage that could be studied. Uh, there are all kinds of possible dangers. On the other hand, uh, Zhang Qicheng argues persuasively that the guoshui that he's talking about is really a matter of making more resources available to moderns or to contemporaries and making it easier for people to think more capaciously with a more open mind because they will have better access to the incredibly diverse and incredibly powerful texts of the past in China and in Chinese language, which, of course, as we all know, is also an extremely resonant and and, uh, and rich archive of uh, ideas which are difficult to translate into English or French or German. Great. Thank Does you. That make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much. So as we get sort of from um, this really interesting working out of ideas into the book, uh, chapter one looks at the ways that contemporary residents of Beijing, through many of the Yangsheng practices that we've been alluding to or sort of mentioning briefly in the conversation so far, so far, actually, as you say, produce forms of space and time, both for their own lives and for the lives of their communities. Now, the chapter is a, um, a really wonderfully evocative and so pleasurable to read tour of the spaces and times and bodies of Beijing, focusing on, um, in particular, um, or, or some of my most favorite parts of the chapter are um, a sort of walk through in the morning and a walk through in the evening, um, the neighborhood in which you worked, the West City District. Um, can you describe for our listeners sort of um, a little bit about the West City District, especially for listeners who may not have had a chance to read the book or um, visit Beijing? And what about this district in particular um, led you to want to focus on it for um, for this chapter and for this book? Um, well, first, let me answer your second question first. We actually, uh, uh, I remember it very clearly sitting in Zhang Qicheng's office and trying to figure out where we would try to focus our work. And we had he had happened to have a big map of the whole city on his wall, and we were just sort of standing there looking at different districts. And he said, uh, Chaoyang District, that's nice and big. And I said... <laughs> I said, what? I said, yeah, way too big, you know, I mean, it would be, and moreover, kind of expensive and also full of suburbs. It was a little too diverse for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought I can't, couldn't possibly begin to come up with something that captured something particular to that district because there's so many different things that would be particular to it. So then we, we looked at some other downtown districts and West City District is um, – it's uh, smaller, it's manageable, it's very well organized. There are street committees and neighborhood committees, and uh, we knew we were going to have to rely on those organizations to some extent at the beginning. And it also has, it's uh, it, the second ring ro- uh, road runs through it, so it has both uh, downtown low-rise housing, which is still, there's still some restrictions preventing high-rise development uh, in the residential areas of the, uh, of inside the Second Ring Road. And it also has the kind of Donway or work unit uh, uh, developments and old uh, residential areas outside the Second Ring Road. And uh, so there were several ways of life there. There were still a lot of uh, very working class people. Uh, there were uh, still a lot of uh, older people there. There were not uh, so many foreigners and foreign corporations as there are on the east side of town. So we thought that it was a, a an economically diverse uh, uh, and and very historical district, and it also had a lot of parks. So we we knew that we were going to have to be working in parks, and uh, the fact that the the Hohai area, which is basically a, a, a park ringing uh, the back lakes, uh, which is uh, absolutely free. There's no um, you know it's totally open to the city. That park seemed to us uh, important to include because it was something uh, an open space where people could do their yangshan activities without even having to have a park pass or pay an admission fee. Um, so that's how we choose the dis- chose the district. And then I, I lived uh, next to the lake for about four months in 2004 and um, in a little, uh, 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 a little hotel run by uh, a drug company. 
a very small hotel just north of the bar district and um so I would I could get out every every morning early and uh, see who was out doing what and talk to them and have walks with people who struck up an acquaintance with me and um, and I could also get to the evening and uh, uh, the kind of evening group activities like dancing uh, just by walking like it was a short walk from Bay High and so forth. However, that area also still had then and still does have uh, some who Hutong districts or back alley districts where uh, there's lots of um, outdoor life going on in these back alleys as well. Uh, and the housing there is is kind of falling down. There's all sorts of housing politics in that area because uh, it, beginning then in the early 2000s, uh, but continuing to now, the renovations and, and uh, a new building there, which is taking place, is taking place piecemeal. So people will buy uh, an old Sahayan, an old quadrangle house um, that has that years ago in the 50s was uh, came to be occupied by many families with sort of lousy temporary structures built up in the former garden spaces inside the quadrangle. They would buy this low-rise housing, very poor quality housing, and, uh, and, and they still are doing it. And, and then they'll renovate it into a very nice courtyard house for themselves and their few rich family members. Uh, so there was this piecemeal redevelopment going on in the area. But meanwhile, a great many people were still living in crumbling old houses, uh, having to get their water from uh, a standpipe in the middle of the shared um, uh, and overcrowded uh, quadrangle uh, garden, having to go down the street to the latrines run by the city uh, to use the bathroom and... Um, having to shower out of a bucket mm-hmm. or to uh, bathe out of a bucket. So there was there was a certain amount of uh, uncomfortable daily life there that we already suspected would have an interesting relationship to the sort of deliberate everyday life of Yangshan. And also in that area, uh, and in many areas in the city actually, there was a big motive to get out of the house because the houses are, are small, overcrowded, cold, or hot, and uh, uncomfortable. So um, the the streets in this area uh, and the and the back alleys tend to be crowded with all kinds of everyday activities. People store furniture uh, outside. You know, they're they're they they they'll, they'll stoop this that they'll squat on the stoop to brush their teeth or give someone a haircut. Um, there's just all kinds of private life that's casually going on in public there, and that's something that I've always been fascinated by. Also, uh, the fact that people don't seem to be um, self-conscious about uh, doing their exercises, cutting their hair, brushing their teeth, uh, eating, doing the homework, etc., etc., on the street. So um, one still sees some of this in that part of the city. It's changing as, you know, the, the more the quadrangle houses get turned into private residences, the more they get closed behind gates and people don't come out of them except to go somewhere else. So these neighborhoods are are changing and of course many people from them are are gradually moving into better housing somewhere else quite happily i'm sure so um but nevertheless i liked the street life in that area and um it's it it was i hope uh, a a palpable presence in the in chapter 1 absolutely was there anything in particular as uh, in the course of your morning and evening walks that struck you or really surprised you about what you were seeing or any particular moment that you recall being um kind of really shocked or surprised <laughs> I, did have a, I did have a great moment i'm not sure it made it into the book right behind my little hotel there was a temple which every to, uh, twice a month had a uh, uh, had a, an event uh, a special devotional event and lots of people came and uh, one of the things that they did these devout Buddhists uh, life uh, affirming Buddhists they would buy uh, big plastic bags of live baby eels uh, at, at the temple 
and they would carry them to the lake shore, which was only half a block, and line them up along the lake shore, and then uh, stand there and pray for a while, and then release the eels into the water, which was a way of giving life, you know, a very devotional way of giving life. And I... Uh, I, the first time I ever saw this going on, I was quite puzzled by it, but I asked someone what was going on and got a very small explanation. But something went wrong that time. <laughs> something went wrong that time. One of the bags toppled in the wrong direction back onto the street, <laughs> and there were eels squirming all over the street, and, and all the devout is scrambling around trying to pick them up and throw them. <laughs> and I was standing there looking flummoxed for a little while, and someone said, for God's sakes, help us. So I get down, and I'm picking up eels and throwing them to the lake. <laughs> it's great. That's it was great. I don't think it was exactly Yangshan, but it was not. In some sense, it was, you know, not a big surprise that things like that would be happening out there next to the lake. All kinds of things were always happening next to the lake. <laughs> That's great. I would have that would have been a great photograph right yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, you should have been there with your camera. <laughs> See me down on my knees trying to figure out if I could pick up an eel. Well, there are actually, um, this gives, gives me a, a sideways way of um, bringing up the, there are some really wonderful photographs in the book. Um, and it's, this is actually something um, that's very striking, not only um, beginning in this chapter, um, especially, but also in many of the other chapters, does the narrative set up um, a, a sort of experience of the space of the city and the space of, or the way Yangsheng practices help create that space. But the book itself, also sets up um, a very interesting kind of space for the reader. Now, this chapter is the first to feature a number of inserts that are set off from the main text um, that emerge over the course of the work. And, and this chapter includes inserts on song lyrics, on long underwear, which I loved, the importance of long underwear in the winter. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? So, so, and specifically, how do you imagine um, an ideal reader, if you can imagine um, such a thing, will encounter these in the course of reading the main body of the chapter and will sort of have an experience of weaving this into um, the rest of the book? Um, you know, we, we decided to do these inserts uh, somewhere along the line because we had, you know, we just enjoyed so much, so many little things that didn't seem to be quite part of the argument. <laughs> so I, I've always enjoyed the long underwear business, the transition which I've witnessed over years of going to Beijing from the early 90s or from 1990 up to the present. The transition from really horrible, thick, itchy, knit, hand-knitted, home-knitted long underwear in the most hideous of colors <laughs> to these wonderful, modern, uh, uh, you know, lighter-than-air kind of um, fleecy things that are in beautiful colors. And um, everyone has made the transition except for some very old people who are probably still wearing their 1985 long underwear and um, uh, that just seemed so significant to me and yet where do you put it you know mm -hmm. so um, I, I hope that people would reading those inserts we also had an insert on the, the uh, Life magazine and National Geographic coverage of right. things like Yangshan in China and um, where I wanted people to get a little distance on um, what they thought they had known you know, so I, w I was kind of trying to manipulate the reader with those inserts to try to get them into the space of uh, our own everyday life as authors, where we we would, uh, you know, we joke and laugh about things like the eels, you know, and uh, I should have put the eels in. <laughs> um, and uh, it seemed uh, that, uh, you know, the reader should be a little bit jolted every once in a while out of just the sort of reading a nonfiction book and learning some facts kind of mode of reading mm -hmm. and begin to, uh, you know, read something that they could uh, that they could see was already partly theirs. That is the question of staying warm in the winter, mm -hmm. for example. Now, as we sort of move through, and there's so much in the book that I already know that we're not going to get to, it's fascinating. But to sort of bring up some of the um, some highlights from the the other chapters, the second chapter gives us a reading of popular health literature, which is really really interesting, um, focusing on two major waves that were evident in the first decade of the 20th century. And this is one of these waves. Um, 
was sort of a series of popular guides to classical literature and lore about healing and the management of everyday life by senior doctors of traditional medicine. And, and uh, Zhang is actually one of those. And we've talked a little bit about his work. Um, the other one is um, what you sort of refer to as an express train wave, a, a series of books vaguely sort of sponsored by the Ministry of Health under titles like Health is Not an Express Train. Um, now, there's so much really interesting material in this chapter that we're not going to have a chance to talk about directly, but sort of one thing that's um, that I'm sure readers will be interested in is a question of uh, the readership of these books. And you're, uh, in the course of your research doing this, um, did you get a sense of um, who's who's buying these books, who's reading these books, and how are these books actually being read and being used by contemporary residents of Beijing? Uh, this is a hard one because it, it's very difficult to do this kind of reception. Uh, you know, it's called reception. It used to be called reception work in, in literary studies. And um, I, uh, I did. I talked to people in bookstores. You know, do these books sell? And they said yes. They just fly off the shelves. But I didn't know by you know in whose hands mm-hmm. very. And I also have a good friend who has worked for years in a publishing house that uh, publishes uh, 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 Chinese medicine uh, popular books. So the Yangsheng books are included in that category. And he told me a lot about how these books are put together and and marketed. Uh, And he said that uh, uh, they are indeed consumed by somebody because... The, the publisher supplies every new book to a bookstore for only two weeks. And if it hasn't sold out or sold some very, very well during that two weeks, the bookstore will simply send it back to the publisher. Wow. And, and, and the publisher uh, doesn't – so the publisher has to be very, very canny about what will sell. And uh, and they there's not a big market in remaindered books. There are remaindered books being sold in Beijing, but it's not – as huge as it often is here because the books are selling out of the bookstores. The publishers have figured out what to supply. Now, I also, um, you know, I also try to, when I visited people in their homes or when I talked to them about books, I tried to get a sense of if they ever bought a book. And most of the people I talked to, their income was pretty low and they didn't ever buy a book. But people gave them books. You know, their, their sons or daughters would buy them a book or or they would get a book from a friend that had been through many hands. Uh, I met one woman out by the lake who became a, a walking buddy, who had, uh, you know, and, and she was that was one home I visited very often. She had seven or eight very dog-eared, very old books in this genre uh, that you know various people had given her, and there was a, a, a minor circulation going on among people who didn't actually buy books and weren't that interested in reading, for that matter. You know, they liked to watch health TV. Um, but uh, then I and but then I would sit down with a few people with a book. Uh, I, I acquired some of those comic strip Yangsheng books, uh, which is a genre that I think is briefly mentioned in the chapter. And sit down with a comic strip Yangsheng book with uh, someone I felt comfortable with, and say, uh, "What do you think about this book? Let's have a look." And and uh, and people would use it in a very glancing kind of way. They would immediately look at the table of contents and immediately go to some part they thought might interest them, and evaluate whether this was any of, of any value to them. Sometimes, quite often, saying, eh, "You know, no big deal." Um, but um, they at least knew how to use these books, and the books. You know, um, maybe uh, most of the books are being bought by younger people to give to older people who are interested in Yangsheng, and maybe they're not really read. But the the point, uh, the the what one thing I can say with much more confidence is that uh, what's in those books is turning up in magazines and on TV and on the radio and in lectures that are held all around in the neighborhoods sponsored by the neighborhood committees. So. Um, the books are actually a convenient for me were maybe not much more and, and for John Chichong for that matter, maybe not much more than a convenient way to get access to exactly the kind of content and substance that was being retailed in more popular modes. But somehow the books are also popular. Also, we were using John Chichong's 
uh, a book in this genre, and also uh, Chu Liman's book. Chu Liman became a huge phenom in bookstores for uh, several years uh, with her uh, very beautifully written and fun books on on life nurturance and uh, so. And because she's a colleague of John T. Chong's and, and became a friend of mine, uh, we were happy to use parts from her books also. That's great. So now you mentioned visiting interviewees um, and talking with them. The next chapter really focuses on those interviews and focuses on some of the major themes around which um, their comments cluster. Um, we've already talked a little bit about um, Zhao Xini, the policeman who liked to fix cars, who was totally fascinating. Um, and he's sort of one of many um, voices that emerge out of this chapter um, who are talking about uh, things like uh, Yang Sheng is active social contribution, the importance of avoiding anger, um, right. qi work and qi transformation, uh, balancing the bitter and the sweet, etc., etc. Um, did any of these interviewees or interviews um, particularly surprise you, or were there any moments where you recall being especially moved or yeah, or surprised by um, what you were hearing or what the, com- the the turn the conversation took? I was especially moved and continued to be by by the the two lady friends. I can never remember the pseudonyms that we used in the book, but um, the the two fr- the, the we, we set up an interview with. Uh, uh, someone who was considered pretty exemplary by the street committee, and she came with her best friend who lived across the street. And we actually, uh, uh, Lily and I in particular, came to be good friends with them and went often to their houses. But um, I was so touched by them because as we interviewed, uh, what's it, did I call her? Zhu? Zhu something. Zhu uh, Hong, maybe? Zhu Hong, yeah. As we interviewed Zhu Hong, uh, she... Um, it became clear that she was the poorest person that we met. She was living on 200 yuan a month mm-hmm. and supplied by her children because she had never uh, been a, a real worker. Her husband had been a worker, and then he became disabled, and she nursed him for years living on his disability. When he died, no disability anymore, So, and she had no uh, retirement because she hadn't been working. So her sons give her 200 yuan a month. But she was the, uh, the self-avowed happiest person we met <laughs> and she had put together a really nice life she had was living in 11 square meters uh that which she had made quite livable for herself and um she was just so great and so cheerful and she had to help her friend across the street who was by you know the usual socioeconomic uh indexes better off and more comfortable and should have been happier but wasn't you know so the the two of them were quite uh, quite the pair and um i was just you know i was really cared for them a lot and um unfortunately they both both moved out to the far suburbs now with their children uh es- escaping their pretty lousy housing and um so i haven't seen them in several years but uh, and then you know the activists, the, the 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 old Maoists, as they called themselves, also both surprised and delighted me because they were so altruistic. They were so committed to doing good for their communities without any particular reward, and while putting up with a fair amount of hassle from other people. <laughs> so, and they felt that Yang Sheng was uh, an an, an, int- an important. Uh, sort of channel through which to engage in this kind of public service. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the sort of as a way to kind of bring our discussion um, to a close before we can, before we completely conclude here, um, I'll mention for listeners that the, um, the last two chapters really both function as conversations, um, conversations between you and Zhang in different ways. Um, so chapter four focuses on an informal essay um, written by your co-author in 2004 called Life. Um, and I would just want to ask you something very brief about this. It's a very fascinating chapter, and it really is set up as um, a, yeah, very much a conversation between um, your between Zhang's writings and your um, sort of, or you say that it's primarily your readings of this, even though you do say that the two of you looked over all aspects of this and co-edited this. Um, this is this is kind of a, a tough thing to end on because it's such a huge question, but um, the chapter explores 
there's uh, sort of this issue of the meaning of life, right? But also the meaning of meaning, as you say here. So this is kind of a huge question for me to ask you um, and to kind of ask at the end of this. But can you say a little bit about this last part, the sort of the process of exploring the meaning of meaning? Sort of what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for you and your co-author in the um, in the context of this chapter? Gee, do you have a page number, Carla? <laughs> okay. Well, it's, uh, let's see, maybe some, um, this, well, how do, if not um, in I the context, of, more generally, that. sort of, so I, I guess it's really a more general question that doesn't need to be um, uh, located in a particular, even chapter, but what is it, um, what does it look like to you to, to talk about meaning, uh, the meaning of life? Like, what does it mean to ask that question in the context of this, um, of this work? I think it, if there's, you know, there could be many answers to this, but uh, it, it, in a, one answer I can give is harks back to your uh, perception that de- deliberateness seems to be a, a factor here. And, you know, I, uh, we, as I recall that chapter, we kind of concluded on the I, on the on the on Zhuangzi's idea that life is a gathering and death is just a dispersion of that gathered uh, formation, and so uh, this I, I find this quite an inspiring idea when I think of, for myself and for my friends and family about the meaning of life or the significance of our lives, and the and it also the idea of gathering highlights the uh, activism of people who are deliberately trying to make their lives more successfully gathered, you know, better gathered for themselves and better gathered in relation to uh, an, always, uh, an always kind of scattering world. And um, so uh, I th- that, that was uh, an idea that uh, we were both attracted to and that uh, I think is, is uh, more powerful than some of the other ideas about the meaning of life in in the um, in the uh, chapter, but uh, I guess the meaning of meaning part has to do. Let me just leap from that to what, the way in which I was particularly hoping to engage readers, and in fact, it's the way that Zhang Qichang engages his students when he's teaching. I was hoping to engage readers with their own lives. You know, I wanted them not just to say, oh, this is how people in China live and think about life, uh, I, something over there. I wanted them to think about, well, I could think about life in this way, or this this way of thinking about life might actually uh, address uh, a meaning for me. Um, and, you know, I often, uh, ever, ever since my very first uh, uh, writing, my master's thesis, uh, years ago in 1975 which I gave to my mother to read you know I've and my mother had the most marvelous reaction she saw right to the heart of the problem in the thing and wanted to argue with me about it and um, uh, so I, in a way I've always been writing for people like my mother who don't care about anthropological fine points they don't care about resistance they don't care about contingencies of history you know they care about the meaning of life <laughs> so i wanted to use this question of the meaning of meaning and the way in which uh you know john chichong brings out some wonderful ancient resources to think about meaning uh i wanted i hoped people would take it up for themselves in some way and this is and this is a perfect uh, place, I think, to to end. I think that this is a, a really wonderful um, insight and sentiment to to bring us to the conclusion. So, Judith, we've there's a ton in this book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's extraordinarily rich text. Is there anything in particular, especially for listeners who may not yet have had an opportunity to read the book, that you want to make sure to mention um, that we may not have had talked about? Well, I, I I think I want to uh, 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 thank you for having such a sympathetic and and uh, detailed reading of the book, and especially because I think there's so much that we could have tried to do that we failed to do. You know, so many things that have come up since in in my thinking and in my conversations with John Chichang, so many things that 
could have been done that we didn't even touch. It's a highly heterogeneous book. You know, it comes in many different parts, which don't always go together. So people have to be a little patient as they read it. Um, but uh, you you have been very patient, and I really appreciate it. It's, it's lovely to... Um, be able to talk about it in this way and i hope you know here and there there will be bits that people will really resonate with oh absolutely and thank you i I think that the very heterogeneity and the way in which it's written invites um, a kind of conversation it invites the reader in and makes the reader part of the story in a way that um, a less heterogeneous structure wouldn't have and so i think that was one of my favorite parts of, of the book so so thank you. So this has been a pleasure, and congratulations on the fact that this is out, now out in the world. What's most inspiring you now, now that this is, um, now that this is out and published? Uh, well, right now, uh, uh, I'm working with a, uh, a Lai Lili, who is uh, an old friend, a former student of mine at University of North Carolina. She's currently working in Beijing at the Institute for Medical Humanities at Beijing uh, University's Medical Center. And uh, she and I are working on um, the, the, um, the national movement to uh, salvage and sort out the uh, traditional medical heritages of all 55 uh, national minorities. We're certainly not working on all 55, but we are looking at the, pro- the, the process of trying to classify, understand, and and, uh, and uh, document or archive the medical uh, traditions of, of uh, a number of uh, national minority groups. This is a complicated uh, field project that's taking us to seven different sites around the Southwest over the next few years. We've already been doing this for a couple of years. It, we're quite far from having anything to say about it, however. It's kind of a big project. Well, best of luck with that. It's a fascinating project, and I hope um, I'll have the chance to talk with you about it in the years to come um, as well. (laughs) Thanks so much, Judith. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.